Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our gospel reading is Mark chapter 1, 29 to 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Sunshine pours in on this place. We pray that you would pour into our hearts. Pray that you would speak, drown out any other voices, that we might know you better and make you better known in this world. Pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they'd be acceptable in your sight. We ask in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. So we're continuing in this season of Epiphany, this time in the, the Christian calendar when we pay particular attention to the shape of Jesus' ministry, right? Trusting that what we see in him reveals not only who he is, but who God is. A kind of basic Christian conviction is that Jesus' ministry shows us God's heart for the world. But we're not just paying attention out of idle curiosity, or at least we don't have to be. Where we're paying attention because that's what disciples do. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the consistent pattern for disciples or apprentices of Jesus, or a rabbi rather, uh, which Jesus is as much as anything else we believe about him. He's a rabbi. And the consistent pattern is that people go with their rabbi wherever he goes, they learn to become like him, and then they do what he does. For Christians who want to be apprentices to Jesus, Our call, our privilege, our ultimate joy is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he does. So 
while we watch Jesus do his thing, showing us what the kingdom of God is like, embodying God's love and commitment to this world, the goal isn't just to be caught up in admiration, uh, the way that I admire my favorite athletes, mostly because they do things I cannot do. Right? When I sit down to watch professional sports, I expect to see people do things I cannot do. Uh, you know, a hockey game uh, played by athletes of my particular caliber would be amusing and entertaining in some ways, but, but not really worth the price of admission, you know? I want to see people perform. And I think that's very often how we are with Jesus. Certainly it's how I am a lot of the time. I mean, don't we often sit back and admire Jesus for his Holy Spirit presence, his communion with the Father, his passionate care for the least and the lost, his all the way to the cross love for us and for all things? And of course, in the Christian life, there's, there's plenty of room for adoration and praise and worship and wonder. Uh, Jesus should be made much of in our lives and our hearts and our minds. Uh, the mystics show us that there are definitely and rightly times when we should be caught up in the beauty of our Lord, in the glory of God made flesh. Worship is an appropriate response to Jesus. Don't hear me say otherwise. But... The stories we encounter in the Gospels, the stories that encounter us, are not invitations to sit back and watch. Right? The Gospels are not Jesus high and lifted up, Jesus, but Jesus the rabbi who calls us. Mark tells us from the get-go that this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then startlingly we discover that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wants folks to be with him because they believe that he, they can, he, that he believes they can be like him and do what he does. Now, today's story from Mark's gospel comes soon after he's called his first disciples. And as if to underline the wildness of what's happening, he names them again, Simon, Andrew, uh, James, and John, fishermen of, of questionable promise. <laughs> they're, they're the ones he's called, right? Young men with not obviously much going for them because he believes they can be like him and do what he does. As Mark reminds us of who who is with Jesus in this moment, I feel like he's saying, pay attention. Pay attention. Don't forget what's happening here. Right? This is not Jesus, just Jesus doing his Jesus thing. This is a rabbi teaching his apprentices. Whatever comes next is exactly what those of us who would follow him are called to do. Which is a little startling when we consider what comes next, right? With all the healings and exorcisms. I don't know about you, but I'm suddenly kind of glad to sit on the sidelines and watch uh, this is more than most of us mainline Protestants signed on for. And, and in some ways, I think that's, that's okay. If Jesus never stretches our imaginations for what's possible, we've probably tried to make him like us rather than us like him. And I have to think that when Simon told Jesus about his mother-in-law, what he was mostly doing is apologizing because they were on their own for dinner. Right? Like, sorry... My mother-in-law is laid up at the moment. Usually she does the cooking. And, you know, the only thing I know how to make is fish. <laughs> Hope you like fish. Like, this isn't an ideal situation uh, to bring your brand new rabbi into. Uh, he might be rethinking his choices at this point. I, I don't really believe that what they expected him to do, even though they'd just seen him perform a healing, was to walk into her room, take her by the hand, and raise her up to full health. But of course, that's, that's what he does. And not just because he wanted something else for dinner. I, I have to assume this, as a rabbi, this was a teachable moment. Ultimately, I think it's about more than a miraculous healing. It's not about less, but I, I think it's about more. More is going on than that. 
You know, in the first century Mediterranean culture, there, was a per, there were pretty significant expectations around hospitality. Right? If someone showed up at your door, you were expected to feed them, not out of obligation, but out of privilege. There was this kind of urgent joy in serving guests. We see it all throughout the scriptures. And I think it's one of the reasons Jesus mostly goes from dinner party to dinner party. Right? His critics call him a, a drunk and a glutton, presumably, because everywhere he went, someone was pouring him a glass of wine and shoving food at him. Now, when Simon's mother-in-law can't get up to serve the guests who've arrived, the disappointment isn't theirs, it's hers. If we know the rest of the story, we know that Jesus is perfectly capable of making a miraculous feast. He could have said, don't worry about it, boys. Don't sweat this, I got it. Right? Let your mom rest. But that would have trampled her dignity, not restored it. And I think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is teaching his disciples that they will be agents of dignity. Now, Mark is not known for extra details. He's pretty like, to the point. So when he uses extra details, we should really pay attention. When he tells us that Jesus took her hand, we should notice. I'm pretty sure he's transgressing some gender rules here. You know, a rabbi touching a woman who's not his wife would certainly have been suspect. But more than that, there's a, there's a closeness that will not be denied. Right? Jesus is not snapping his fingers from a safe distance. He's right there, her hand in his, raising her up so that he can receive her hospitality. Now, this is every bit as much about her dignity as his power. As his disciples, let's watch and learn. No question we're to be people who come alongside, who heal, and who raise up. But in the way of Jesus, we're also the ones who receive. There's an unexpected mutuality here. I think too often we Christians want to serve without receiving. And we imagine that's because of our great humility. But just below the surface, I think we're more likely to find arrogance and ego. Unfortunately, the way of Jesus isn't arm's length charity. It's hand-in-hand dignity. Followers of Jesus are to be agents of dignity, which requires a true humility. Humility, you might know, comes from the same word as human, hummus, uh, dirt. Right? True humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. True humility is the capacity to recognize that we're all in this dusty business together. It's developing eyes to see the miracle of the person in front of us, created of dirt and spirit, the image of God, just like we are. Humility is walking in the way of the one who was with God and was God, but became flesh and moved into the neighborhood to be with us, to take our hands, to lift us up, to share in this life together. Now, the more time I spend in this passage and the Gospels in general, the more I'm struck by Jesus' humility. Like, it's easy to get caught up in the extraordinary here, right? The, the healings are, are breathtaking. Imagine the scene outside of Simon's house that night as people danced for the first time, as people saw the sunset for the first time, as people sang the songs of their people for the first time. Imagine the joyful chaos as folks who'd been bound by demons had those shackles thrown off by this miracle-working rabbi. I mean, it's marvelous. I want more of that. But it's easy to get distracted by the wonder of Jesus and miss the withness of Jesus. It's easy to get distracted by the wonder of Jesus and miss the withness of Jesus. He's unmistakably there. You can tell that by all the healed people running around. But he's almost lost in the crowd. What we see is the healing and the hope, the joy and the dignity of those who've come to him. That's how we know he's there. 
Now, I've never been quite sure what to do with the whole casting out of demons and then not letting him uh, tell what he, who he is. All of this is a little bit beyond my personal experience, for better or worse. Uh, but again, I think we can miss the forest for the trees. Now, one thing we know about evil is that it constantly draws attention to itself. I mean, think of the stories of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where we hear uh, that we hear about the gospels in uh, hear about in the gospels of Matthew and Luke. Like all of the devil's schemes have to do with getting Jesus to prove himself, to be all he can be, to make the world take notice. If you are the Son of God, show us. I can't help but wonder if Jesus' refusal to let the demons tell the world who he is has to do with his unwillingness to be a spectacle. That, that is not how he will be known. That's not the evidence that he wants. Now, there's another story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, where John the Baptist is starting to wonder if Jesus really is who he thought he was, if Jesus really is the Messiah. Now, John's been sitting in a prison cell. He's under the thumb of King Herod, who's a, a megalomaniac and a philanderer to boot. And this is not quite what John was hoping for when the kingdom of God that he'd been preaching arrived. <laughs> so he sends some of his own disciples to ask Jesus what's up. And Jesus says this. He says, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. That is the evidence that Jesus is about. And even as he points out all the things in his ministry, he's not even the object of the sentence, right? <laughs> the subject of the sentence, rather. It's not, I'm healing people, I'm proclaiming good news, but they are healed. They are hearing good news. The focus is on those who are healed and cleansed, raised and renewed. There is no question that Jesus expects his disciples to do as he does, but he expects us to do as he does in the way that he does it. Right? As hand-in-hand -hand agents of dignity. As humans caught up in the wonder of other humans healed and made whole, which is to say as beacons of humility. His disciples will be agents of dignity and beacons of humility. This is his first lesson in Mark's gospel. And then we see how Jesus cultivates that. Told that early in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Jesus cultivates his kingdom of God presence by resting in the relationship of the Son with his Father. Now, if we go back to those temptation stories, they follow immediately after Jesus is baptized, right? And the voice from heaven says, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. And the first thing the devil says in the wilderness is, if you are the son of God. God says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The first thing the devil says is, if you are the son of God. The root of the temptation is to forget or ignore or to doubt his truest identity. If we'll be his disciples, if we'll live in the fullness of life for which we're created, we best take note. I think it's safe to say that maybe the greatest danger to our following Jesus is that we forget that we are who he says we are. And when we forget, then we try to prove it. We prove our worthiness to us or... Maybe worse, we shrug our shoulders and assume that he's up to things we're not really cut out for. That he does what he does because he's who he is and we, well, we're us, aren't we? <laughs> Only human after all. But it's precisely in his humanity that Jesus calls disciples. 
And if he's called us, and I'm, I'm convinced that he has, it's because he wants us with him, because he believes we can become like him and do what he does. Now, as I've said before, I think Jesus takes us much more seriously than we tend to take ourselves. And his sneaking off in the morning into the darkness, is, it's instructive. It, it'd be easy to rest in the success of yesterday evening, right? To ride the, the wave that's beginning to crest of his fame, It'd be easy to lean into all of the great things that people are saying about him, the, the power that has them gasping in admiration. But that would be actually a reduction of who he is. I think the most important part of all of this for us who would be his apprentices is to witness to the fact that he is not simply the sum of the, his actions, the success of his work, the accolades of the crowd. All that stuff is a mixed bag. On one hand, it's wonderful. Right? It's a sign of the coming kingdom. The, the way things are will be when God gets what God wants. But, but the same crowds that cheer him on will hang him on a cross when he doesn't turn out to be exactly what they imagined him to be. What matters is that who he is rests entirely in his relationship with the one he calls Father, the one whose heart he wears on his sleeve, the one whose will and way is the fabric of his being, one who says, this is my son, the beloved, with him I'm well pleased. That's the only metric. Jesus doesn't sneak off to get a little quiet time. He heads out into the wilderness, away from the distractions, to rest in the promise of who the Father says he is. And to let his every moment, his every breath, his every, every fiber of his being be shaped by that identity and nothing less. You know, it might be startling to think that Jesus calls us, that he believes that we can do what he does, that we can be healers and whole makers, agents of dignity, beacons of humility, a true and radiant humanity. That can feel like an awful lot some days, right? Especially when the daily news makes it seem like that's all just a bit of a pipe dream. But that's not the half of it. Not the half of it. What's really astonishing is that in his presence and following his lead, we, we come deeper and deeper into the presence of the one who looks at us here and now and whatever else is going on. says, this is my daughter. This is my son. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. Now, if we'll be like Jesus and do what he does, we have to know this first. Get it as deep in our souls as it'll go. You are God's child, the source of divine pleasure. What the heck? That's why we're called to take time and devotion and study and prayer, not, not to check things off the Christian to-do list so that we can get on with the rest of the day. We get to spend time in God's presence to remember who God is and remember who we are. We spend we, we would let Jesus lead us into the wilderness, that place of formation, away from the noise and the distractions that would tell us anything else, away from the demons that distort our identities in all kinds of clever ways. I think our first task as followers of Jesus is to learn more and more that we are created, called, claimed by a love beyond measure. My child, beloved, whom I am well pleased. Then, and maybe only then, we can follow him faithfully into the world, like him, to do as he does, agents of dignity, 
beacons of humanity, signs of the world being made. May it be so. Amen.